everybody, and welcome to Comic Club, your friendly neighborhood comic book podcast, where those comic friends of yours who help guide you through the world of comics and graphic novels. Each month, we read a comic or graphic novel and talk about it on the show. Go check out our past episodes to find a collection of conversations around the best and most interesting comics you might have already read. I am your host, Blaine McGaffigan, and I am joined, as always, by Adam Rorschach Cook. My face! Give me back my face! Great to be here, Bland. <laughs> Great to have you, buddy. We are streaming live today from the convention hall. This is our full episode where we cover our favorite lines, creator biographies, give out awards to our favorite art, and talk about possible adaptations. Quick warning, we'll be spoiling this month's comic, so proceed with caution. Adam, take it away. What did we read this month? This month, we read Rorschach by Tom King and Jorge Fornes, which brings us back into the Watchmen universe. There's a new person playing the role of Rorschach, and after a failed assassination attempt leaves him dead, it's up to a private investigator to find out his connection to the presidential candidate he tried to kill and just how far the conspiracy goes. Blaine, give us your thoughts on Rorschach. Oh, man. Um, This is a complicated one. And even before we were recording, we were like, oh, we kind of started to kind of have that sort of take because there were so many things I loved about it. The detective story really did pull me along. And I was gripped. I was speed reading through these pages because I, and and they're dense. I mean, he packs a number of panels on a page. We're, We're talking nine to 12 panels a page in a lot of these comics. Not a lot of... Um, you know, big spreads at all. But um, I did find myself confused quite a bit. I was wondering kind of if Watchmen is something so iconic to us, right? And I was looking for things and I was thinking almost too hard about the Watchmen of it all because I was like, ooh, there's, you know, I see a, a little reference to baked beans because Rorschach used to eat baked beans. And I and I see a little, oh, Millennium or that girl smoking that kind of cool cigarette thing with the bulb on it. And I remember that from the comic. But then where my mind was going was even bigger things like, when's Dr. Manhattan going to show up in this thing? <laughs> and um, And things like... Here's the thing that confused me, Adam, is the main character is talking to two dead characters because he's kind of like so deep in the case. He's kind of going a little bit crazy. And us as comic, us as readers, it was hard for me to understand what was real and was not. And I thought I was reading a time travel story for like three issues where I was like, oh, the kid and Rorschach have like bled through time and they're like talking to him in real life. Like I, I, I was just straight up confused for a bit of it. I think, um, well, I mean, I mean, what did you think? I, I think that's sort of the intention, not necessarily to confuse the audience, but to sort of play with the sort of like nature of storytelling and make it a little ambiguous yeah. as to yes. what time frame it's happening in. And to me, I felt the same way largely because there were a lot of points where I, I was thinking, Wait, is this a time travel thing? What's what's happening? Yes. Are they actually talking? Are they in the same room? Is this a flashback? Right. And I think that's intentional to kind of get you sort of caught up in the messiness of the story and how, in my mind, how this detective is kind of putting it together in his head. So kind of like uh-huh. mentally, he's, you know, maybe he'd be talking to 
instead of talking to himself in his mind, he's talking to the kid and he's talking to Will Meyerson. And a lot of that stuff was kind of, they would just kind of play with it as he's reading these letters and then he'd be in the scene. Um, And I think part of that was just to sort of get you caught up in the storytelling aspect of it and just make you a little confused, honestly, a little, little disorienting as to what you could believe and, you know, what was actually happening, which I, I think, and I'll definitely get back into this. I think that's a kind of a nod to one of the themes of the story, which is kind of, you know, how information like gets distributed and how people sort of like build beliefs off of information and ideas. Well, I mean, if unless you want to save that, I mean, I I think that's an interesting take, and I think, um, first of all, I I agree with what you're saying because there was a time whenever I was really starting to go down that, and I felt confused, but I knew that this was a part of it. I think this whole unnamed detective was really, again, sort of that Rorschach t- test for ourselves, where we are there, we know kind of what's going to happen because they kind of keep putting him in Rorschach's place. It's kind of assumed that he's eventually going to turn to Rorschach, or at least I was putting that together as I was reading. And, um, but I just think like, I remember the maybe the first issue or a second issue, it ends with, it's 2020, Rorschach is dead. And I was like, this character the detective looks like he's from the 70s he's wearing like a 70s suit he's got sideburns and he he has a freaking pager at one point and and this is where i was again confused on the watchman timeline of i remember watchman the 86 comic or 85 there's like these floating cars and like slight futuristic things and I was having a hard time remembering, and maybe you can refresh my memory, Adam, the Watchmen TV show. Did did a lot of that sort of Ozymandias future sort of tech that he was kind of helping bring forth get pulled back? Like, did did that kind of go away? Or like, do you know do you know what I'm saying? Because I know that was set in middle America, Oklahoma, but um the, do you know what I'm saying there? I, I, I do to an extent. I don't really remember flying cars i remember you know there was some tech in it definitely that the the heroes had and stuff but i in my interpretation was that kind of after the squid attack happened there was like this whole alternate timeline that threw off technology and kind of the um like the the timeline of progress progress and that sort of explains like why they're still using a beeper because i thought now I really wish I had watched I, – I did not watch um, the HBO series before we recorded this. I didn't rewatch it, I should say. But I feel like I remember a couple like older technology things where they were just kind of saying like, oh, the world went on a different path because of that. And so small things are affected in ways that you wouldn't necessarily think just because of that. And yeah, and that that's how I rationalized it in my head as I was reading it, right? I was like this the the squid attack set the earth back technology-wise. Right. But then and and again, I had to revisit Watchmen original comic cuz I remember at the end of it, Ozymandias launched a new advertising line that was like Millennium or um something and it was kind of like the turn of the century is new and uh whenever I was saying like floating cars, it wasn't necessarily floating, but they were they always looked like gra- like anti-grav mm, cars okay. and they were like these bubble sort it's of like cars that, that did and stuff. futuristic designs that were just going down on the street and stuff like this and it always struck me because i would always look down in the background of all the panels and stuff like that um 
Well, I mean, what about you? What What did you think about sort of the detective story of it all? I liked it, and I was thinking about kind of detective stories in general and how they can be hard. You have to really work to kind of keep the reader interested, especially when you sort of know part of the ending, because we know that, you know, Rorschach and the kid die. They fail in their assassination attempt. And so it's not really about, you know, how did they get there? It's kind of the why of it all. And they do a pretty good job early on, I think, of hinting and just sort of outright, you know, basically saying that there's a larger conspiracy here and there's going to be more than just this story that this detective has to find. And so you're kind of just waiting to see them reveal it all. But I, I think they did a good job of keeping you interested by making like very captivating backstories for for both the yes. both, you know both those characters and kind of just taking the detective through the whole ringer of it all to see how far he was going to go cuz like you said they were hinting that he was kind of really like taking on the Rorschach mentality in a way and you're waiting to the end to kind of see what he's going to actually do and if he's going to you know take that final step to follow what Rorschach did um or what Rorschach would have done, maybe. And yeah, I, I thought that it was a good detective story in that aspect. It maybe it didn't like blow my mind that when they kind of revealed the actual conspiracy at the end. Um, and so, you know, some ups and downs. Another thing I had also thought about was I I, I did feel like there were there wasn't a lot of kind of hints to help you ever figure out the conspiracy I thought I just felt like they kind of dropped it on you at the end and you're just kind of like oh okay well like yeah I guess that makes sense but I would have liked a little like you know been able to kind of solve it I feel like a great mystery or detective story when you go back and maybe this would happen on a second read but when you go back and read it again you can see little things that you say oh I should have like picked up on that they were trying to hint like this was something I should have paid attention to the first time around and I didn't really think of anything, you know, that stood out to me in that regard. The the only thing that I thought of that kind of cued it up and and listeners as you're listening and trying to figure out what the sort of reveal was, if you haven't read or whatever, we're talking about whenever you learn that it wasn't Redford that had the campaign or it wasn't a sort of purely third party sort of assassination attempt. It was actually um, started by Turley the governor who was running for president and set all this in motion so that they would have an assassination attempt. The only thing that I think kind of cued that, but it was so nondescript was that that FBI and his security guard burst through the back side of the, um, of the sort of catwalk because there's like the security guards and they're like, why did, why are they go over there? Why didn't they back us up over here? And they like, they like exploded through the wall to attack the catwalk. And they would have only done that if they sort of knew and pre-planned to sort of do that. But that wasn't even really reference or, or thing. I just remember logging that away in my brain whenever I read that first part, because that the cop did say that he's like, why did they go that way and not the front door or, or not back us up on our end or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. But, you know, otherwise, besides that, I did think – I thought it was a good detective story just in the sense that I was interested the whole time. And something, I mean, you brought up is the backstories. And Tom King does such an incredible job of giving these 
very, very layered backstories. And you get in the head of this detective who is reading letter, like the actual materials, right? You're, you're getting letters with um, the people, or you're getting the accounts of those three men. There's the issue where he's inter- they're interviewing the three men that all went out to the farm to help um, Rorschach and the kid in some way with their sort of plot. And you're just getting all their backstory and how they were involved and how they helped them. And I love the way he's sort of putting these pieces together. And it is this it's not necessarily an unreliable narrator, but it's an it's a narrator who is figuring it out as we're figuring it out because there's the whole part when you f- you hear about Oates's assistant um, who is re- who has the tape and she's um, admitting it all that happens right. and and that was all you know a cover story basically or she had been forced to do that against the will so the information that he, the detective is receiving is the same information that we're receiving which is false information basically so i i think us being in his head and seeing those really textured backstories through the visuals and everything was was really some of the my favorite moments and it actually really you know you saying that makes me think that it added a lot to the payoff of the end because really, you had to see him go through this ringer to see how far they went to manipulate him. Because really, that's mm-hmm. his thing is like he had just been manipulated this entire time yes. and was, yes. you know, being made just a, like just a pawn in their game. And yes. that was, I think that's what ultimately pushed him over the edge is his own kind of lack of agency in this whole, this whole, you know, game or whatever you want to call it. And, um, and so I think you kind of, like you said, you have to go through it the way that he does and get this information and be considering it to see, you know, just how much it would affect him and like how much he was investing in the story. I love that. I love that. And and I felt that and I didn't really think about it. And him being so good at his job is what makes their plot effective, right? right? If if a normal detective would have just dropped it or, or that I never made the connections and I never did it then it wouldn't have come out that it was Redford that did it, right? But because he put all those pieces together, he was able to sort of solve their version of it, and then he solved the real version of it. Um, One thing I just wanted to drop in here is just like, we have to talk about this. I hope it's not in your art awards or or best lines, but... um, Frank Miller is in this in this uh, comic. Yeah, not I mean. in my best lines or art awards, but Frank when they first drop him and at first they just say his name, and I thought, his oh, yep. okay, kind of a weird coincidence they're going to do there, right. and then it's just Frank Miller. <laughs> right, it is the Frank yeah. Miller you know who wrote Dark Knight Returns and Three Hundred, <laughs> the Dark Sin Fife City, Returns, Dark, in and in this, this it... yeah, he's he's a pirate yeah. writer who's wrote the Dark Fife Returns. <laughs> I, so so in this weird Watchmen timeline, and I love there's so many callbacks to Watchmen. Is you know in our Earth One IRL timeline, um, superheroes were the popular comic book medium of the 40s and 50s. In this timeline, uh, with the Black Freighter, with comics like the Black Freighter in Watchmen, pirates are are the popular medium. There's there's blockbuster pirate movies. They're huge. I love that as a concept. And it's just such, I, I can't, I mean, we have Pirates of the Caribbean, but it's hard to imagine just like franchise pirate right. stuff even past that. Pirates of the Caribbean feels so long it ago. It does. And that one was like, before that one, everyone said, you can't make a pirate movie anymore. Like people just don't like pirates. And yeah, I love how they kind of keep, 
sticking with that pirates being the you know the chosen kind of hero of the time yeah, yeah. and um pontius pirate is just a hilarious pontius pirate joke. yeah i wonder i really really wonder <laughs> did tom king call up frank miller i mean they both work for dc comics was he like we're gonna make listen everybody knows you're kind of crazy yeah. frank Everybody knows you're a little bit crazy. You and the boys, you and Alan and Grant Morrison, all the the boys, you're a little kooky. Can we make you a conspiracy theorist who, you know, adopts the mantle of Rorschach in this alternate timeline? He's like, this isn't 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 our world. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, Frank, I just, this is not our world. This is a fake you. This isn't you. And Frank's like, absolutely. Absolutely. Just a hundred. He's like, Sounds about right. Yeah. That's, I, I think yeah. he had to have gotten his blessing. And um, I, f- I feel like Frank Miller probably has a sense of humor about himself. I don't sure. know that. But it feels like in his right, just based on his writing, I feel like he probably has a sense of humor about himself. But that was such an interesting choice. And I like it because I like how they will bring in the real world into their universe. Like having President Redford, their time. you know, mm-hmm. little things like mm-hmm. that that make it feel like this is kind of an alternate timeline that could have maybe happened. I I, I love that. What what Rorschach presupposes is <laughs> what if a squid destroyed half of New York City? Maybe the squids did show up. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's um, we all know. Um, we all know yeah, I, that Doctor Manhattan died in the end of Watchmen, but. What this comic presupposes is maybe he didn't. That's right. And 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 so what about Dr. Man? Were you ever expecting him to show up or did the story just feel cuz it does it really doesn't feel that watchmany. I was worried at first that this was going to be sort of a watchman pastiche that was going to do 12 issues like it and it was going to be following very close, but it is barely a watchman yeah. story. It, it, it's 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 just using the iconography um, and the world of it instead of, you know, maybe the mainline DC superhero world where it would be weird to have Superman in this world. But it, it's just a straight detective story in a world with no superheroes. They existed sometime in the past and there's none anymore and they're all gone. So it's a very strange. Yeah, I think it's a really smart choice because it's really hard to, I think, like, everyone's going to judge a Watchmen story, right? If you're really trying to do, if you're trying to bring in Dr. Manhattan, you're trying to call back any of those characters. And so I think you have to kind of venture out and do your own story. And, you know, you use the things that you need to use, like the ideas that are important for your story and that you find interesting. I think Tom King was really fascinated by what he could do with kind of the alternate timeline. Okay, what things could be different based on a squid attack happening in 1985. And he just kind of plays that idea out and sees where it'll go and uses the Watchmen universe to just like set this, you know, kind of interesting political conspiracy detective story. And 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 that's what you said is key. I don't know if you have any best lines that wants to touch on the sort of political or conspiracy. We can save it. Or do you want to have that conversation? No, now? no, let's have it now. Um, to me, that's what Tom King wanted to use because whenever I think about Watchmen, yes, there's all the superhero stuff, but there really is this social political thing going yeah. on. America is at war with 
Russia, I believe, and the doomsday clock is ticking further and further closer to midnight. Um, we could drop bombs in any second. We are on the verge of essentially the, this Cold War. And Tom King, I think, is saying using sort of that, um, you know, framework for for having a superhero or detective story against a political backdrop and doing that for history. And the political backdrop here is sort of a left wing sort of liberal president who has served a long time um, in the wake of essentially, I'm guessing, I guess they won Vietnam because of Dr. Manhattan. And then Redford has served four terms is running for a fifth or is running for his fourth. Either way, the conservative uprising is is starting with Turley, right? They're, the conservatives are are hoping for a candidate. And then there is just a lot of, you know, we talk about the conspiracy, the political conspiracy, but we're also getting into conspiracy theories here with things like who the squids are and what the squid attack has done to Americans and the way they view the world. Yeah, the way it's shaped their entire lives and belief system. Um, and I, I, I love it because that... First Watchmen, Alan Moore's Watchmen, it, like you said, it really is a commentary on its time and kind of the the things that were happening back then in the 80s, the mid-80s, the Cold War, Reaganism, all this stuff was like really high right. exactly. you know, importance and very relevant. And Alan Moore made a pretty strong comment on it. And I thought Damon Lindelof's HBO show did a great job, you know, kind of bringing it into the modern age and this one, especially because in that one, like you said, they're kind of afraid of the cold war implications and people just constantly being at war and nuclear war, destroying the world. That's, you know, that's the whole impetus for Ozymandias to do, you know, the squid attack in general. And, uh, and now it's kind of like in our modern age, I feel like conspiracy theories, misinformation are some of like the biggest dangers to, our political world and, you know, maybe just our country in general. And so it makes sense to have a story that's like set in that world, a direct commentary on that and just kind of the way that information can affect people's lives, you know, whether it's correct or incorrect. We're at war with each other in this. There is no um, global threat that is external outside of America in this comic that I remember being mentioned, right? It's it's a war of the left and the right. And um, well, besides the squids. Yeah, it's like a, a <laughs> conspiracy theory that, you know, that they all are afraid of the squids and use them to, you know, kind of whatever their party line is, they, they use the squids in reference for that. But yeah, it, it's um, the squids, man. Yeah, they, they reference taking away um, guns and um, and, you know, I, I just think it is really interesting. And I was also thinking about the kid. The kid is like a cult leader because she convinces, let's see, Will Meyerson, the muscles guy, and then the detective to all be, and then Frank Miller, and then the detective to all be Rorschach. So she's almost like this cult leader who was indoctrinated by her father to sort of like preach this gospel of of the mission of, you know, the, the citizen. Yeah. What is the citizens, what is the citizens role in America and how do you fight against the unthinker? Right. And so it was this really kind of like layered thematic that I haven't really fully sorted through, but I think is going to make, you know, good rereads and also a good like snapshot of, you know, 2020 um, in America. I really like 
the kid as a character. And I thought she was an incredibly interesting character, a very worthy addition to the Watchmen, you know, world. Yes. Yes. Um, we have, we, we, I mean, there is so much here, but let's get into our sections of the show. First up, we have best lines. This is the section where we showcase the written word and highlight our favorite moments of dialogue, exposition, and more. Adam, you kick it off. What is the first best line of the night? Okay, my first best line comes from the candidate that they almost assassinate. He's a governor, Governor Turley, and he's kind of the conservative, um, you know, leader at the time. And there's this great line. He's talking with the detective, I think, for the first time, and um, they're in their office together, and Governor Turley pulls out a pack of cigarettes, and he says, don't tell them I'm still doing these things. It'd be on every channel and I'd have to explain shit. You got to hide some things when you're trying to be better than yourself. And I love that last line. I think that's such a Watchmen line and so indicative of like the heroes in Watchmen who think that they're heroes hiding their flaws. Rorschach, especially, he hides all this, you know, kind of flaws about him and can become something better than his actual self by putting on the mask. And I just think that's such a great line and so true about, you know, politicians or just tons of different people who want to be better than themselves and present a version that they think is a better version and kind of the sacrifices that people make to to achieve that. Ozymandias and Alexander the Great. You know, he has to hide a whole conspiracy and kills tons of people to to make a better world. Absolutely. Um, all right, my first best line. This is actually in the comic twice. It is in the first and maybe second to last issue. And it, it's, it's echoing basically the tagline, this poem, this sort of thing of Pontius Pirate. So I'll read it out to you. Yay, Pontius Pirate sailed over the seven seas. And when... He was done. He got down on his knees. He prayed. He prayed, O oh Lord, what hast I done? Not enough, God answered. Not enough, my son. I love that. Do I fully understand sort of what that means in the pirate implications of this comic? No, but I love Tom King always sort of does these literary references, whether he's referencing Shakespeare or making up his own poetry here. Um this ends, Adam, Rorschach ends with the detective going to a movie and sitting down for Pontius Pirate and sort of like, um, what do you think the pirate sort of symbology means as applied to the detective and Rorschach in general? Um, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. <laughs> so so good luck. But, but I was trying to sort it through my own head as well. I think that they find a sort of connection between the pirate and something that they see in themselves or something that they want to see in themselves as someone who acts, you know, who is not afraid to sit by, they stand up and they take action. Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of the big, you know, big thing that they see in the pirates. 
Yes, I I love it. And then as just a last note, as I was thinking of it as you were talking, I know this version of Pontius Pilate, I believe he was just a very commoner, a common man, and ascended the ranks, um, or or was able to, not necessarily ascend the ranks, but was able to, like you said, enact change and act and actually make something happen. So I, I love that. What is your next best line? Okay, my next best line, I'll switch it up a little bit, because this one's a nice, good uh, response to that one. This is the kid talking, and she says, So it's us and them, Mr. Meyerson, as it's always been from the beginning of things and will be until the end of them. From God looking at the dark and seeing there was light to the devil pulling the stars out of the sky. There's a world where nothing matters, and there's my gun. Bang! And I think that's the whole thing about that you can do nothing, and you can have a world that nothing matters, or you can grab your gun and shoot. Bang. Crazy. That's crazy, man. I, I Yeah. She's, she's fascinating. Um... Yeah. It's it's interesting. I, I I the whole sort of assassination plot I I found to be um really sort of like like I, I agree with what you said. I think the kid is a great addition to the Watchmen universe. Um well, okay, my next real quick, best... before I let you go. Go go go. I think it's interesting because that's her version of doing the right thing. Is she's been so conditioned to thinking that this is the right way that you have to, you know, kill someone to actually enact change, that that's her version of doing it. And she puts it so plainly and like very eloquently in the same statement, but it is very dark, obviously, and sinister, and it's not a noble thing the way that she enacts it. Totally. I just got to throw that out there. Yes, yes. Okay, my next is it's... Just a, a political commentator on the news. It's kind of one of those um, things where you just hear overhear the television and it says, but for now we face the reality of another four years of Redford, a continuation of his center left policies. That is clearly what the American people want. And this is what we have. Amazing, really. And not to get super political on Comic Club podcast, yeah. but I was, I was really, I read that. And I read Amazing Really. This is what the American people want in that that they vote. And this is what we have and what they get in that that leader gets elected. Because right now we are living in a time when popular vote is kind of meaningless. or Maybe not meaningless, but the popular vote has been overridden or has not voted, has voted for the opposite party in maybe like four of the last five uh, elections. The, the popular vote lost, essentially, um, and the other candidate won. And I thought it was amazing, really, that in this universe, the popular, what the people want, actually puts a president in power. So just, just a little commentary. And it really is amazing that um, things can happen like that. You never know. I mean, it's really interesting to see sort of the world of the Watchmen leaning towards like the ultra left and liberal and how it affects the world and creates this backlash in a different way. It's almost like, you know, we were destined to get there no matter what. Yeah, and it it is, and then you also see the pendulum swing or the pushback, 
and the pushback is internal and the pushback is violent, both in the Lindelof show and in this show, is it's violent. And that's something I couldn't quite figure out is I, I could never quite figure out why did the kid want to kill Turley, the conservative um why did they want to kill the conservative candidate? That's the thing I could never quite figure out. And maybe that, that was just like an oversight in my reading. And I get that they were part of like the plot of it all. Like it, there wasn't really a true, uh, like pure assassination attempt. Do you have an, do you have an answer or do you have an idea there? I have a next best line. Okay. Let's hear it. My next best line, which I will directly address your question, um, is Will Myerson. This was a flashback and he, is in a gun shop. He's it's a young Will Myerson and he's with a young version of the kid and he's picking out a gun for her. So this is all totally made up, but he says existence is the gathering of nonsense. And I think that's a big, another big theme of this is kind of how you interpret information and what you choose to believe. And so these people, you know, some of them are just, it's almost like they have no other choice. The kid, her whole life, the way that she was raised, she really had no other option because of right. how she was raised and forced into totally. this circumstance. And so I think that a big part of this story is talking about how information shapes people into the way that they are. And so it was kind of the same with Will Myers and, you know, his information and how he had kind of experienced different things, what he chose to actually believe, you know, it ended up being completely crazy, but he was so invested in it, it seemed real to him. And, you know, they believe in some of these things because the squids actually happen in their world. And so it gave them credence to just believe a lot of different conspiracies. His, they think that they they hear from, you know, squ other squids or aliens that tell them to kill the governor. So I don't think it was necessarily because he was conservative. Um, I think it was just they got thought they got a message from aliens and they were so um sort of emotionally raw or vulnerable they were so vulnerable yes. that they were the type of people yes. who could be manipulated because they were kind of on the yes. track to kill this governor and the governor's people just saw it and they just kind of let it happen they didn't really yes. give them the idea they just let it happen and then they realized oh we can actually use this, we can prevent the assassination attempt, and we can use this as a way to further our own interests and make it seem like a conspiracy that was all hatched by Redford. But it was only because, you know, they took advantage of broken people who had been manipulated by misinformation. And I think about how so many people in this world were manipulated by that squid attack. And it has just completely, like, their entire belief system is now formed because of this fake squid attack that you know ozymandias just manufactured and he might have caused uh you know stopped the world war but maybe the world war would have never happened if he didn't do the squid attack and it would have been fine so that's right and um you know we keep talking about the kid and i just had another link in my mind because there's two people who were very sort of misinformed or or, or very um vulnerable here as you put it Will Meyerson has a chip on his shoulder. He's very much the sort of version of this that, you know, is the, ne is the negative version that we don't like 
that's like, ugh, like this person just feels like a victim. They feel like they haven't got their fair shot. They're always blaming other things for their own misfortunes, right? Nothing's ever their fault. They're just always pointing fingers and they're looking to get back at the world. But what makes the kid a good character is she's essentially doing the same action and act that Will Myerson's doing. In fact, it's her idea. But she's so empathetic because it is so out of her control because she was essentially brainwashed from a child, if you like really get into it. And they do get and into so it. And so traumatized is, in that way, too. Traumatized in that way is is she you you've said it on the pod. She didn't have a choice. It was it was indoctrinated into her, and we are all sort of a product of our teachings, right? I I, I think that's fair to say. So that's what makes her because she is very like like a sympathetic person because she she's just real and the way she talks and she does have emotions. She like whenever she's writing the letters, I think those were some of the most tender sort of moments and, and how much she grappled with her own thoughts and ideas and things. So um, I don't know. I, I like that pairing because I'm glad Tom King didn't write two sort of dickheads who are both like trying to just get at the system and yeah. are just, you know, bastard. You have to, the reality is that there are people that are misinformed and it's not their fault. It's really not their fault. It's the system and the, the the whole world's fault. You know what I mean? It's not their fault. So um, I, I like that sympathy. All right. You got one more best line in there for us? Whew. I feel like this is going to be a long episode, man. We're really going everybody on. Everybody strap I, in. Yeah, everybody strap in. Okay. This, I, f- I feel like, is Tom King's sort of um, you know explanation of who Rorschach is. He says, and you, Rorschach, that's you. That's meaning. People look at your face and they see something about themselves, something true and lasting. That's what you are. You're the force in us that sees the chaos of all the world and gives it structure, gives ourselves a place in that structure. And, you know, it's just one of those lines where Rorschach is this sort of beautiful iconography of, you know, um, the inkblot test. And it is whatever you make it. It is an open canvas and Rorschach is, can be anybody and it can, it can be anything based on how you are approaching sort of this ink block test. And that sort of line I thought sort of captured, um, the way it's like making sense of the chaos of the world and putting it into your own box that I thought was just really well written. Yeah. I, I love, um, the idea of Rorschach as, you know, the placing chaos in order, that kind of uh, analog for that. I think it, that's a great line. Love it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and just move on. We're going to move on to They're the Best at What They Do. This is the section of the show where we chat about the creators themselves, covering how they got started in comics and highlighting their other notable works. First up, we have writer Tom King. We have read a Tom King book before. Go back on your podcast app, scroll through the archives, and find The Vision. We recommend it over here at Comic Club. Um, It's a great comic. Tom King uh, has written for both DC and Marvel, but mainly DC. He was assistant to X-Men writer Chris Chris Claremont. He did serve in the CIA of counterterrorism. And there was a moment, Adam, I was going to send you this. There is a picture of Tom King, if you look up Tom King, like military, and he's got a gun and he is standing in front of these like 
two swords in, I don't know if it's Iraq, it's this kind of iconic monument that I, I don't know where it is. And there's sort of an, a recreation of it in the comic, but it's one of the military, I think it's Oates maybe, mm. whenever he served in Iraq, and, and it was him. So it just kind of recreated a picture of Tom King. Tom King has written, he's very famous for his 12-issue runs. He has written The Omega Men, A Big Run on Batman, Mr. Miracle, and lately Supergirl and The Human Target. Next up, we have Jorge Furness. He has drawn Rorschach, obviously, Batman, Green Arrow, X-Men, and Wolverine. Lastly, we have Dave Stewart, who is who is a colorist. Um, he did coloring for Wonder Woman a comic that we have read here. Is it Historia? Um, go back in the Comic Club archives and find the Wonder Woman comic we read. And notable work of him is Hellboy, The Umbrella Academy, The Goon, The New Frontier, and he has won a myriad of Eisner Awards. Speaking of awards, Adam, let's move it on over to the segment of the show where we hand out award-specific visual moments. It can be a single panel. It can be the coloring or lettering, and sometimes it can be a whole scene. Adam, let's give out our art awards. My first art award of the night. I really like how, you know, you'd get to the end of the issue and then you'd get a nice big full page cover the next one. I thought there were some really cool covers uh, in this run. So I'm just going to give the best cover award. You could pick a lot of these. My favorite Mm -hmm. was this really Rorschach-y looking one where there's a huge skull face Rorschach kind of ink blot in red. And then in much smaller size, um, there's uh, Rorschach and the kid are running kind of, they're about to run through the skull, it looks like. And it's a really cool image, really good use of negative space, kind of reminds me of very Hitchcockian to me. It's got these long shadows coming off the kid in Rorschach as they're running and just reminds me of kind of like a Saul Bass classic title sequence thing. Love it. Best cover. You get that award. Fantastic. Um, I echo your statement about the covers and your Saul Bass call out with sort of the graphic design elements is killer. My first award goes to best lettering And this is a segment whenever we see, I believe his name is Muscles the Man Mountain, which is just a fantastic name for a character. This is the first person who the kid gets to wear the Rorschach mask, and it's him in prison explaining the bad things that he's done. And as Rorschach, he was going around punishing people. It is a six-panel page. They are all very tall, but to me, what's really distinct about him, like I said, is the coloring. Um, we see just like really deep purple, a gray, green, orange, blue, and just deep red. And just these really iconic scenes of Rorschach just laying an utter beating down on some baddies. I mean, just smashing heads through windows, kicking in the face, drowning in a vat, throwing off a bridge. Um, it's just a really kind of cool moment of violence but is really highlighted by the colors so that gets best coloring that's great adam okay well mine jumps right on that i was going to do best color palette because i really wanted to call attention to the sequence where he's interrogating the three different you know suspects or whatever yes and he uses different colors to 
help you keep track of each different story. So one person gets a red, one person gets a green, one person gets a blue, and their entire color palette, you know, for that character is in that color. And it really helps you keep track of who's talking because there are times when it's just text and you're supposed to know they'll have three people talking on one page and you can tell who's who just by the colors in the background. So I love that and I'm giving that best color palette. Oh, I love it. I love it. I know I know that issue. And my next award is also from that issue and also involves colors. We love it. <laughs> Dave Stewart is a great colorist. And essentially the whole comic is that whole issue is written in these three every page is three different stories all stacked with the colors like you mentioned. And in fact, maybe I'm answering my own question. Oh, I just solved it. Okay, sorry. Um, the uh, This award is most confusing uh, page. And and I think, again, I just solved the confusion Take in my brain. Take us through baby. Okay, so the top, the, the, the detective comes out of sort of the interrogation room and there's another detective and he's like, so how'd that go? And they're having a, you know, he's like, I had to lay a beating. I, you know, they won't talk. I have to get tough, blah, 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 blah. He's just kind of, it's just this long segment of talking. But the camera just keeps zooming in or the panels keep zooming in on the detective in the top panel pulling up this red Solo cup from a water jug and it's red and when he pulls it, there's a green cup behind it and then the middle spread of of panels, he takes that same cup that he just pulled and puts it in the water to fill up and now the cup is green. And then whenever he throws in the bottom uh, row, he throws it in the trash and all of a sudden the cup is blue. And in my mind, I, I was thinking so hard about these damn cups, Adam. <laughs> Why are I, the cups I, I, changing? I, and this was a part of the confusing part. I was like, what is... Go-? And there's so many close-up bo- uh, of images in this comic of bottles flying through yeah. the air. There are so many bottles flying through the air. And I was constantly looking at the bottles trying to figure out what's going on. Adam, your previous art award, the coloring palette, is the top row red, the middle row is green, and the bottom row blue? Hold, please. Let me bring that one back up. Uh, red, green, blue, yes. So that's what I just solved. Because I was like, why? what is with the color of these damn solo cups? And it wasn't until we recorded just now that I realized the top row is red, the middle row, his solo cup is green, and the bottom row, his solo cup is blue. So there you go. You're gonna have to- so what we're solving... Formerly known as Most Confusing Panel Award. <laughs> there you go. Let's move it on whoa, over. Whoa, 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 whoa. I got another award, buddy. Okay. All right. Cool. Let's let's give out our last art award of the night, Adam. The last award. I had to get this no, one. No, no. I have one more, too. I have one more. No, well, no. You know what? My last award, yeah, I last, should say. I got to get this award. one in there. This one, I am giving the Most Watchmen Panel and it's a nice shot. To me, this is the most classic Watchmen shot you can get. Got a nice landscape, okay? Starry sky. Red planet. Small, introspective, blue Dr. Manhattan just staring out into the, the infinite abyss. Most Watchmen panel. That is my favorite Watchmen shot. I love that they put that in here. Love that shot. I was wondering if it was almost... I was like, is this the original Dave Gibbons art? It looks like, so, it, it, like, it's right there. It might as well be. And, and in fact, that's what Jorge Furness does such a great job here is 
it it really has that sort of like grounded yes. sort of like brew baker um, Dave Mazzucchelli. Sort of, Yes, Dave Mazzucchelli sort of like vibe where it's just like these are real people. His character work is so clean and realistic. Um and and again, like it echoes sort of that Dave Gibbons when he when he needs to, and I thought it was just great. All right, you give us the last art award of the night. <sighs> okay, fine. I'll give the last art award. This is most bloody page. And it's whenever this final confrontation happens between the detective and himself as he realizes I am Rorschach. He strips completely down and Rorschach says, he says, the detective says, I can't. And Rorschach says, you will. Boom. And we see the detective's face just a full blood ink blot. Like there is no face left. It is just this really rich sort of blood drops. And Blood is such an iconic image in the Watchmen universe, obviously because the cover, the blood dripping on the the yellow comedian button. So it just was this sort of transformational moment where he becomes Rorschach, and he is now he is now no longer the detective; he is only Rorschach. And I I thought that was some really cool imagery, and just visually looked fantastic. I love that one. That's a good one. Really good. We didn't really talk a ton about. Um, the detective kind of fully becoming Rorschach, but I think he's he gets so corrupted by not only reading their stories and seeing you know these how these frail people were manipulated, but when he realizes how he was you know just a pawn, like we said, that's when he he can't go back anymore. And yeah, he's fully Rorschach at the end. Absolutely, yeah. The I mean the final reveal um, when he goes in, he's like everything's on this tape. Yeah. And it's these nine panels, even more up close, of him pressing play on the tape and the sound effects. And then he presses stop, or no, no, he then he presses play on the tape and his hand is covered in blood. And then it does this, the first, like one of the two panel spreads of just this huge empty office with those two characters just lean back in their chair, just completely throat slit or whatever yeah. it is. Um, that was... That was pretty shocking. Like, did you know what was going to go down? Like, like, like. No, I, I, I didn't really know how it was going to play out at the end. And right. so I was just like, when you see it, you're like, I guess, yeah, that's kind of like, I shouldn't be surprised that's what he was going to do. But it was still pretty, uh, pretty shocking, I would say. Yeah. And the way he kind of walked out of there, I thought was really smart. One more just art thing I wanted to call out. There is a cameo of both Tom King and Jorge Furness in the movie theater. He buys his ticket and you see two men walk towards the walk towards the panel. Those are the creators of the book. And so I just want to throw that one out there because I thought that was a little fun callback. I loved that one. And I was like, these guys are way too specific to just be like random passerbys in the panel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. They're not background characters. No, they are very specific. Um, let's get into... The Adaptation Alley. There are a couple Watchmen adaptations. This is where we stroll down the alley to talk about possible adaptations of this book. Maybe we'll talk about the past adaptations. Adam, I'll, I'll pass it over to you and you take it away. Oh, so there's a lot of paths we can take in this alley at this point. I, I really wish, you know, folks, sometimes life just gets in the way. And I was hoping that I could just do a, a full run back, watch the entire HBO series, watch the Zack Snyder Watchmen, see what I could see. Um, that did not happen. And unfortunately, uh, yes, Blaine? 
I was going to say, l- let's save that, yeah. Adam. We we on Comic Club, we talked about it last time. We've done it before. We're going to do a revisiting of Lindelof's Watchmen on this show at some point. Maybe we'll do it a whole month. Maybe we won't even read a freaking comic, Adam. We're just going to do Lindelof's Watchmen. We love that show, and I would love to revisit it. Don't revisit it without me. Make sure you talk to me about it because I want to do it with you. Agreed. Agreed. But there are a lot of different awesome uh, adaptations – or not a lot of awesome adaptations. There's two adaptations. And um, (laughs) one is awesome. One may be less awesome. I'll let you decide which is which, even though we just said we love the Watchmen HBO series. (laughs) Um, But I haven't heard any sort of rumblings about a second season of Watchmen. I I would still like it if it's in the right hands. Damon Lindelof has kind of said that uh, he kind of he, he said everything that he needed to say with that first season. But Bummer. he wants to see someone else pick up the mantle and take the Watchmen, you know, into another direction. And um, I think I wouldn't be surprised if if that happened, if Damon Lindelof was involved on more of an executive producing role and less of the showrunner role, because that is that's a big, uh, big to do. But haven't heard anything lately. I'm sure it's only a matter of time, though, before people start talking about a new Watchmen thing. So give it time and we'll hear something. What about this um, as an adaptation? What about Rorschach as an adaptation? Could you see this being a TV? If if Adam Cook Productions were going to put this one together, I mean, TV series, film, um, how would you kind of conceptualize this? Tough. I mean, I think there are a lot of, I I think the natural inclination would be to say, oh, you got like, you know, do a limited run series. You can do the different episodes can be like a character background story and stuff. I say, no, forget about all that. It's this is like a tight little detective story. This should be a movie and that'll keep people kind of interested the whole way throughout. If it becomes a series, I think it's kind of hard to keep the momentum the whole time, um, keep the narrative thread going of the mystery while also doing the background stories. And I just want to see more great movies being made. So someone give it your best shot. Send me a spec script. I'll give you notes. I'm very constructive. I love it. And I actually tend to agree with that. I think this is a great comic. You know, I always estimate comics take about 15 minutes to read 15 times 12 you do the math, not me. I'm a comic reader, not a mathematician. Um, but you, you take those, you take those sort of twelve issues and turn them into forty five minute episodes. That's too long, too man. Long. I don't have time for that. There's not enough sort of meat on this yeah. bone. I think a movie is really sort of the answer here. So, all right, Adam, I, this was a great conversation. Was there, um, you know? Uh, any other last sort of points about Watchmen in general, Scott Snyder that you want to get, uh, or uh, Zack Snyder, anything else you want to get off your chest as we wrap this baby up? I I don't think so. I'm very excited to do a rewatch of the show. I loved it the first time around. I'd really like to see how it ages. Um, I just love Watchmen, so I was really glad to you know, have a little more Watchmen in my life. This was very different than what I thought it might be, but in a good way. And I I definitely encourage anyone who likes the detective stories or likes Watchmen to give it a shot. Absolutely. And join us next month for spooky season as we read Something is Killing the Children. If you like today's episode, go tell a friend and 
and like a, and leave a review of the show on your podcast app of choice. You can find us at Comic Club Podcast across the internet. I am Blaine McGaff on Twitter. And I'm Danger Adam on Instagram. And that's going to wrap it up. Adam? Comic Club out. Comic Club is brought to you from Upper Esh Media. This episode was edited by Adam J. Cook. Our intro and outro music is by Tiger Cup. Katie Livingston at Living Kate designed our logo. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on social at Comic Club Podcast, and join our Facebook group to continue the conversation online. Remember, everyone, read more comics. Comic Club.